Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, The Power of the Dogs, When Trouble is Near, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 14th, 2006. Abandoned by God? That might not sound like a very pious thought, but it sure is a common experience. The slings and arrows of life can give one pause. A reader of this webzine recently wrote to me about his battle with the final stages of AIDS. My daughter has a teenage buddy who was just diagnosed with a malignant tumor. If the aggressive chemotherapy is not successful, then doctors will have to amputate her arm. A few weeks ago, a friend received a phone call that every parent dreads. A child was involved in an alcohol-related fatal accident. Beyond these personal pains, the daily news reminds us of global suffering also. There are now reports of yet another genocide, this one against the Acholi people in northern Uganda, where their mortality rates are three times higher than in Darfur. Faced with such public and private hells, some people jettison faith altogether. The Oxford zoologist Richard Dawkins derides religion as, quote, an indulgence in irrationality, end quote. At Tufts University, the philosopher Daniel Dennett reduces faith to a primitive impulse rooted in our evolutionary biology. Atheism like this can feel brave and bold, but not many people have adopted its minority report. Repudiating faith altogether, in fact, does little to solve the problems of human suffering, and some people think it even leads to nihilism. Few people find atheism spiritually and emotionally satisfying. Feeling abandoned by God is bad enough, but abandonment to your own solitary self, fully alone in the world, is even worse. Despite the pain and suffering that we experience, the vast majority of people maintain their belief in God. Truth should not be determined by majority opinion. Sometimes the tiny minority is right, but I think that this hints at something. A few Sundays ago, for example, I noticed in the New York Times that for hardcover nonfiction books, 10 of the top 25 bestsellers dealt with religion in general or Christianity in particular. At one level, I think the reading public's interest in religion illustrates curiosity about history, culture, and politics. But if you scratch a little deeper, I think you'll discover a palpable longing for an assurance in a world where, according to the psalmist in Psalm 22, verse 11, trouble is near and there is no one to help. Psalm 22 for this week makes for painful reading. The Hebrew poet praises God and pours out his heart to him, but he also argues with God. I have to say, though, that his candor is so much more authentic than the pious clichés that we sometimes use to mask our pain. The psalmist complains that God is not only remote, but silent. His prayers go unanswered, 
acquaintances ridicule and mock his faith, leading to social isolation. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him, they scorn. They wrongly regarded his misfortune as proof of divine displeasure. As if recounting a bizarre nightmare, he imagines raging bulls, roaring lions, and wild oxen attacking him. Threatened by what he calls the power of the dogs, Psalm 22, verse 20, he loses his composure. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. In his state of weakness, confusion, and vulnerability, his life spins out of control. He can no longer control his destiny, and he compares himself to, quote, those who cannot keep themselves alive, end quote. I can only try to imagine what an Ekoli person in Uganda might feel when reading such poetry. The psalmist reminds us just how much God prefers heartfelt authenticity to superficial religiosity. The scriptures encourage us not to suppress or candy coat our feelings of abandonment. They do not discourage our cries of dereliction, our sense of divine desertion, but in fact they give them voice. In his poem by the title Affliction, the poet and pastor George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to, 15, to 1633, captures this paradox of resilient faith in the midst of deep anguish. Listen to Herbert's poem. Broken in pieces all asunder, Lord, hunt me not, a thing forgot. Once a poor creature, now a wonder, a wonder tortured in the space betwixt this world and that of grace. My thoughts are all a case of knives, wounding my heart with scattered smart. As watering pots give flowers their lives, nothing their fury can control while they do wound and prick my soul. All my attendants are at strife, quitting their place unto my face. Nothing performs the task of life. The elements are let loose to fight, and while I live, try out their right. Oh, help my God, let not their plot kill them and me, and also thee who art my life, dissolve the knot. As the sun scatters by his light, all the rebellions of the night. Then shall those powers which work for grief enter thy pay, and day by day labor thy praise in my relief, with care and courage building me till I reach heaven, and much more thee. Born to privilege and wealth, Herbert experienced his own brokenness, and as a result, he demonstrated unusual compassion for the human condition. He was only three when his father died. Elected to Parliament, he anticipated a distinguished career in politics and public service. 
But at the age of 36, he shocked his friends when he became the pastor at Bemerton, a small village near Salisbury, England, where he spent the rest of his short life before dying of tuberculosis at the age of 40. In Bemerton, Herbert preached, wrote poetry, served the pastoral needs of his people with loving distinction, cared for the poor, and even helped to rebuild the church using his own money. None of his poems had been published when he died, but upon his deathbed he gave them to his friend Nicholas Ferrer. He asked them to be published only if they might help, quote, any dejected poor soul, end quote. His little book, as he called it, contained what he called, quote, a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus my Master, in whose service I have found perfect freedom, end quote. Herbert could write like this because he interpreted his human brokenness in light of divine compassion. Like the psalmist, he believed that ultimately God, quote, has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Jesus himself, you'll remember, screamed the prayer of Psalm 22 when he hung from the cross. Mark 15, verse 34. In so doing, Jesus modeled for us what Lawrence Cunningham has called, quote, the primordial truth of the entire biblical tradition. Negatively put, we are not condemned to complete autonomy. Positively put, we come out from God, we are sustained by God, and our proper destiny is to be with God. And now for further reflection. When and why have you felt most abandoned by God, and what did it feel like? With what parts of Herbert's poem do you especially resonate? Third, why do you think that atheism has such little appeal to most people? Four, why are so many religious books on the bestseller lists? Five, consider 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 from the lectionary readings for this week. We know and rely on the love God has for us. And finally, for further reflections, see the fine book by Donald Carson, the title, How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. For books this week, I review a book by John Meacham, American Gospel, God, the Founding Fathers in the Making of a Nation, New York, Random, 2006, 399 pages. Some atheists and agnostics argue to remove In God We Trust from our currency. On the other hand, conservatives on the religious right work for prayer in our public schools. 
Secularists fear religious zealotry. Believers abhor moral anarchy. In this popular level historical overview of the relationship between church and state, religion and politics, John Meacham, the managing editor of Newsweek and a practicing Christian, by the way, argues against both extremes. There is, he insists, a well-defined historical common middle ground, what he calls a sensible center, that best serves the many and varied interests of our country. Meacham writes to help us recover that successful effort of our founding fathers to, quote, assign religion its proper place in civil society, end quote. He writes with the hope that we can move beyond discord and division to both reverence and tolerance. It is wishful thinking rather than sound history to imagine that America was founded as a specifically Christian nation. Meacham does a good job of showing how and why this falsehood propagated by conservative Christians is not true. George Washington, for example, is not known to have taken communion, and one bishop who knew him was confident he was not even a believer. Jefferson's scissored-down New Testament is well known. In the realm of what Meacham calls public religion, the Founding Fathers assiduously avoided any sectarian bias. They strongly protected the right of every citizen to freely exercise private faith or no faith at all, as each individual conscience saw fit. Such was the paradox between political liberty and religious faith. Quote, many, if not most, believed, but none must. End quote. But understood in a broad, generic sense, America is, is, is in fact a very religious, if not specifically Christian nation. On the whole, Meacham thinks that the benefits of this legacy have outweighed the costs. Even today, he says, it would be silly and impossible as a practical matter to deny or to try to eradicate this collective cultural consensus that we've inherited. The Declaration of Independence thus argues that our rights are God-given and not granted by the state, even though this God is deliberately and vaguely defined, and the Constitution never mentions him. Or again, if you look at the image on the back of a dollar bill, you see one of our three national mottos, the Eye of Providence, above an unfinished pyramid with the phrase, God has, under, God has favored our undertakings, which in fact is taken not from any biblical literature, but from the poet Virgil. In another line of argument, Meacham appeals to the likes of Homer and William James to observe that all human beings are naturally religious, and that to deny this impulse is both wrong-headed and futile. He considers it natural and probably healthy for our country that virtually all presidents and our most important leaders make public, if deliberately vague, appeals to the Almighty, from Lincoln and FDR to Martin Luther King, Jr. Meacham makes copious use of quotations from primary resources, 
These are documented in 80 pages of endnotes. A long appendix provides nine examples of divergent primary documents on the public role of religion in America. For example, a letter from George Washington to a Jewish congregation. Or again, a treaty between America and Muslim Tripoli ratified by the Senate in 1797 that declared, quote, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, end quote. Or thirdly, a letter from the 19th century free thinker Robert Ingersoll that defines religion of secularism. At times, Meacham's book is so general that he only skips across the mountaintops. One chapter begins with the Civil War, for example, devotes a few pages to Darwin, and finishes with Wilson. But that's a minor quibble for an otherwise excellent popular treatment of what he calls the, quote, shrewd compromise, end quote, that our founders made between protecting private faith and ensuring public freedom. John Meacham, American Gospel, God, the Founding Fathers, and the Making of a Nation. For film this week, I review the documentary called Paper Clips from the year 2005. In 1998, Principal Linda Hooper and two teachers at the middle school in Whitwell, Tennessee, a former mining town with a population of 1,600, cast about for a school project that would teach their eighth graders about prejudices, stereotypes, diversity, and tolerance. Their little town, they knew, was entirely white, and the middle school enrolled no Jews, no Catholics, only five African Americans, and one Hispanic. They settled on the theme of the Holocaust, but how to teach it? They decided to collect one paper clip for each person killed by Hitler, six million in all inspired by Norwegians who had worn a paperclip on their lapel during the war to protest the Holocaust. The project stalled after an initial burst of energy and enthusiasm, but then a reporter for the Washington Post and then the NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw ran pieces about the project. In the end, the children collected 27 million paperclips from around the world. 11 million of which they displayed in a railroad car that had transported Jews to the death camps. Walls fall, hearts open. The teachers, for example, tell how they, they too even stereotype Northerners, and even their own students. The town meets Holocaust survivors who speak in the local Methodist church. This might not be a great documentary film. I thought it dragged a little, Plus, I think it's hard to say much new about the Holocaust, but the simple narration of how real people were genuinely transformed in an otherwise insignificant middle school was remarkable. I only wish I had watched paper clips with my, mind, with my ninth grade daughter. Don't miss this wonderful film, Paper Clips, from the year 2005. And finally for this week, for poetry, 
We offer a poem by J.R. Tolkien, who lived from 1892 to 1973. The title of the poem is All Ye Joyful. Sing, all ye joyful, now sing all together. The winds in the treetop, the winds in the heather. The stars are in blossom, the moon is in flower, and bright are the windows of night in her tower. Dance, all ye joyful, now dance all together. Soft is the grass, and let foot be like feather. The river is silver, the shadows are fleeting. Merry is Maytime, and merry our meeting. Sigh no more pine till the wind of the morn. Fall moon, dark be the land. Hush, hush, oak, ash, and thorn. Hushed by all water till dawn is at hand. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church, for Sunday, May the 14th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.